Monaco and Culture is brought to you in association with the all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence electrified. The Cadillac Lyric delivers a sporty, responsive and agile drive that makes every mile a milestone. This groundbreaking Ultium EV battery platform fundamentally changes how electric vehicles are engineered, delivering charging and power storage technologies that fit seamlessly into far-reaching journeys and daily commutes. The Lyric is a vehicle that balances the sensual and the technical in masterful harmony, where rhythm, form and colour unite. From emergency braking to intelligent alerts, parking assistance to vehicle monitoring, the Cadillac Smart System suite of safety and driver assistant features, standard on the Lyric, means you'll drive with added confidence. While innovations like available supercruise driver assistance technology and Google built-in set a new standard for technical prowess. Take the next step. Head to Cadillac.com now to configure your car. The all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence Electrified. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. They are the scenes in a film that thrill and excite, that cause you to cringe in horror or discomfort, or make you wish you'd never started watching Nymphomaniac with your grandma in the first place. Not only does on-screen chemistry and sexiness have the ability to make or break a film's success, the cinematic portrayal of sex shapes our culture and our behaviour. For many people, film is a revelatory, if often imperfect, vehicle for sex education. On today's show, we're exploring the messiness of sex scenes on the big screen, their history, enduring allure, and of course, the nightmarish situations many actors have faced in order to attain them. We'll be speaking to one Monocle staffer who laments the lack of eroticism in Hollywood nowadays, and with the writer and film critic Leila Latif, we'll discuss the new Storyville documentary, Sex on Screen, which attempts to untangle the messy history of cinematic sex and build a vision for a brighter future of fornication on film. Plus, we catch up with an intimacy coordinator to find out what the unusual yet indispensable role entails and how it's changed the industry. First up on today's programme, I was joined in the studio by Monocle's senior correspondent and erotic film connoisseur, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In a recent column for Monocle, Faye lamented the death of sexy cinema and why we need to bring it back. Faye, wonderful to have you in talking about something of a specialist subject for you. You've written a recent monocolumn about sex. Sex in the cinema. Basically, first things first, have we gone off sex in the cinema? Are we, have we become shy of watching skin on the screen? I think we did. And I have to say, this is about cinema because I do think TV picked up a lot on that. Mm-hmm. But it's really a shame, Rob, because for me... A sex scene is essential in a film because it's, it's part of who we are, right? I think it's, you know, it's part of, of being a human. And, and I was looking at the numbers, am I being unfair? But then I looked at the top 20 films of 2022. I mean, honestly, uh, if you're looking for a sex scene, probably what you would get 
is a glimpse of Chris Hemsworth's buttocks in Thor, <laughs> <laughs> Love and Thunder. I mean, I, I did my research here. No, but, but joking aside, I do think there is a problem. I do think there is a desexualization, actually. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. talking about the big films, but it's important as well, the big films. Art House, of course, remains the niche. There's no problem there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know what's happening with Hollywood. There's a certain puritanism from left and right as well. In the past, used to be more from the right, but I, I do think that's changing as well. It's a really interesting thing. I mean, you mentioned um, the only bit of nudity in the top top 20 grossing film being in Thor, a Marvel film, a fantasy film and a Marvel film and a, and a film that's a sort of kid's film for adults, I suppose. What do we think about the problem being that it's all films have to touch all bases and be for children and for the parents that are taking them to the cinema or maybe the parents want to go and see a Marvel movie, but it has to be palatable for children, you know, for kiddies' audiences as well. Is, is it that it's trying to be all things to all people? That's a very good point. But then, I mean, OK, I'm looking back actually quite quite far back mm. now, but I remember 92, 93, a film like Basic Instinct. It was generally the Marvel film of the time. It was one of the top hits at the box office. And it's quite a risque film. I mean, there's new nudity, there is uh, violence, you know, it's quite, you know, it's something that you wouldn't see having the same success nowadays. Maybe you would have like a, a straight uh, to Netflix type of film similar to Basic Instinct. <laughs> I mean, not the same script, not the same quality, I have to add. Uh, but yeah, there is a sense of shame. You, you mentioned kids. But let's be honest, I don't think kids are the biggest watchers of, of, of superhero films. I do think the majority of it, they are adults. And, you know, I know that we're going to talk on the show that, that we have to change if we're doing a sex scene. You have to film in a different way. I know there's been a lot of abuses in the past. Of course, this must be addressed. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Yeah, you're not being gung-ho about oh. the realities of an intimate act between two probably strangers on a film set, which, which, which we've certainly, we, we certainly dealt with in this programme. Do you think maybe it's just too risky, the insurances, the assurances that you need on, on the film set, an intimacy coordinator, at least one of those? Do you think that it becomes too risky to put sex into a film, that it's more trouble than filmmakers can it, be bothered with. Yes, I, I, I think it is risky. And in the rare case where, and, you know, I know people made fun of the film, but let's say Fifty Shades of Grey, which was a, a kind of a phenomenon, I wouldn't say it's the great, greatest film, but it's almost like the, the film industry kind of mocked that, you know, in a way, oh, <laughs> this is a hit, but oh my God, this is so embarrassing. Yeah. And, and it's funny because there was not like another massive kind of a erotic film since then. And, and again, I'm talking here for the big audiences, blockbusters, and not art house, and I find it, it's a shame. As I said, Fifty Shades of Grey is not my favourite film, Rob, <laughs> but I have nothing against it. Does, I, would, I would love to see another does version. Does some sort of job, doesn't it? Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and may I propose something as well? If we are in 2023, we are more diverse than ever. Let's show the diversity as well in sex scenes, you know, because of course in the past, there were a lot of abuses against women and all sorts of stuff, but you know, as we're becoming more accepting, there's more diversity on the big screen. I mean, I think we should also have more diversity on sex scenes as well. So we're missing an opportunity here. Yeah. I mean, it seems it's it's a really interesting thing. I wonder whether... And the, the sex on screen, this, this Storyville documentary that we're talking about with um, Leila Latif, a lot is made in that film, and probably rightfully, of the sort of sexual revolution in the 1960s not suiting everyone. And I think there's an idea of kind of naughtiness, which... I kind of feel like I understand what that is and I might be wrong in kind of putting my sort of 45-year-old's morals on people that don't think that stuff's okay. 
And I wonder whether it's misreading of words like this, like that that picks up one, one person's kind of naughty kind of end of the pier idea of, of a certain sexiness in movies is just simply behind the times. It's just simply old hat nowadays. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. You're talking about different generation. I mean, it could very well be, Rob, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm here 36, maybe I'm also part of a different generation. But it kind of infuriates me when sometimes you go on social media and, and people say, do we need sex in films? And I'm like, yes, of course we do. I mean, yeah. it kind of, I don't know, that makes me actually very angry because yeah. it's, it shouldn't even be a question. I mean, yes. I mean, yeah. it, as I said, it's, it's part of who we are. I mean, I'm sorry, there's almost no defense for that. I mean, of course, if you want to do an evangelical film or something specific, it's fine. Yeah. We don't need to have sex in everything. But, but it is a grown-up thing that happens between adults. In a film, it needs to be done for plot. It needs to be done. But how much do we need to see? And also, while we're on the subject, we should um, list out some of your favorites because I think you've probably got a list. Yeah. Knowing you, Faye... In a good way, because this means diligent research has been done for this section of the programme. First of all, we need to see, I mean, we can change. I mean, it's fine, a beautiful kiss, even a kiss, Rob. I mean, I, I don't know mm. if you heard the story. I don't know if it's been mentioned before. There's a Netflix film called You People. And apparently the couple in the film, they, their kiss was CGI. Yes, I mean, this is the kicker for your monocolon, wasn't yes. it? That's crazy. That's I mean, crazy. Yeah. But, so it's not, we're not even talking about, you know, a very kind of graphic sex scene. We're talking about a gentle kiss, perhaps. And you mentioned my favorite scenes. I mean, there's quite a few, but one thing that actually I'm glad my parents did, they were not so controlling about what I watch. So from a young age, I watched films very, you know, like The Exorcist, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very heavy-handed films at times. <laughs> but Basic Instinct for me is an all-time classic. Yeah. I think it's it's fantastic. I know it's being revisited. There's all sorts of things. And even, you know, as a gay man, I also appreciate films like Stranger by the Lake, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a French art house film extremely graphic. I think even I was uh, a bit shocked. I remember when I went to the cinema but beautiful at the same time. A stranger time. no more. Exactly. <laughs> it was poetic. The, yeah. It, you know, it was quite violent at times, but the way the film director did, I mean, that's why sex scenes can be very versatile, mm-hmm. uh, if I may say. So yes, from Basic Instinct to Stranger by the Lake, I love showgirls as well. I love the pastiche as well. <laughs> well, that's the thing. A lot of people have got to re- realise that these films, not all of the, these films do have a certain amount of arched eyebrow and irony. And I think some, sometimes critics of this sort of filmmaking aren't understanding the kind of elephant in the room that it's quite a lot of it's a joke. Right. Yeah, it is yeah. a joke. You can laugh about <laughs> it. And, you know, a, a, and again, when Showgirls was released, I mean, everybody said that they hated. But now actually there are some fans say, you know what, actually it wasn't a bad film. It's quite satirical uh, in some ways. So, yeah, there, there's a, a long list. I mean, Belle de Jour as well, which yeah. is, is fantastic. Do you, do you actually have a favourite, Rob, as well? I don't know if I really have a favourite. I mean, Basic Instinct was a sort of classic of the kind of VHS era of when I was growing up where, you know, where everyone you know, sadly cliched in the cliched way, sort of broke the videotape with the pause button kind of thing. And because it was one of those things where it, Hollywood was a different thing. And I think we, we must separate pornography from sex in films, but there was certainly less of a, there was a greater divide then because of the lack of one and the, and the lot of the other. There was a lot of sex in Hollywood, but the rest of it was very difficult to get hold of, I suppose. And I think perhaps some of that sort of desensitization has happened because of, because of online stuff as well. I think, I think that definitely changes people's manners, and I think it probably changes people's morals. It's a, it's a really weird sort of sliding scale that you see there's such a kind of 
openness with one thing and so it leads to a sort of puritanical puritanical element in another thing but yeah people need to sort of take this stuff perhaps with a with a pinch of salt you mentioned stranger by the lake there that's a french film and one of the things i was thinking about throughout this whole discussion is would we be having this discussion in france do you know what i mean because i feel like it's a very anglo-centric english-speaking sort of pseudo-Christian thing that we're sort of talking about here. I agree. Not that those things don't pertain to France, but they just have a different interpretation. I agree, and I grew up, you know, I grew up in Brazil as well with Brazilian cinema, mm. and I do, I do think it was quite liberal when it comes to nudity, mm. uh, in many ways very similar to France, and, and I completely agree with you. So some countries probably they are not having this discussion, but it's undeniable that you know, Hollywood and even here in the UK, it's extremely influential to what we see on the big screen. So we kind of, it does influence a little bit the other countries as well. And they might be, actually, we don't know, actually, we should talk to a French film critic about it. But I think even in France, they might start seeing things changing a little bit, you know, and the relationship with nudity. It's amazing. I was watching uh, Le Mépris the other day, a fantastic film, Brigitte mm. Bardot. Lots of nudity, but it, you almost, when you're watching the film, of course, you see there's nudity there, but it's so essential for the film. It's so beautiful uh, to see that you don't think, oh, my God, she's naked. Oh, my God, he's naked. I can see his yeah. butt or something. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's almost like secondhand. It's all part of the big screen. So, uh, yeah, I, I, it worries me a little bit that this kind of Anglo influence will start reaching reaching out uh, to other countries as well. Yeah, it feels like that Puritan, Puritanism is going in waves. Mm. And as we say, we have this discussion in the full knowledge of what Sex on Cinema was about, and that Storyville, Storyville documentary is about. But nonetheless, um, it does feel that you know that some of the manners that, that some of the manners of the worst practice in Hollywood is affecting some of the artistic decisions that the best of Hollywood could make. I suppose exactly. Perhaps. And and as I said, we're living uh, in an era where we're seeing more female directors, more diversity, more gay couples in films. You know, all sorts of, of diversity. Let's do it with sex scenes as well. That was Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And next up is the writer and film critic Leila Latif. We sat down to talk about the new Storyville documentary, Sex on Screen, and unpick the history of sex in cinema, warts and all. Leila, thank you so much for joining us on the programme today. And there is a lot to unpack, as they say, about Sex on Screen, an excellent um, new documentary in the Storyville strand on the BBC iPlayer. It covers such a lot of ground so quickly. I mean, it's a kind of, you know, it's an eyeball teaser in many senses of the word. But I wanted to maybe first ask you about something that people in the movie industry and movie historians know a lot about, and that is the Hayes Code, because that seems to sort of sit sort of a third of the way through this documentary. Can you tell us a bit about what that was, so the Hayes Code was essentially something that came out in early Hollywood at a time where there was a lot of scandals coming out with the you know about Hollywood's decadence and they were so depraved and stuff and mm. most notably probably Fatty Arbuckle and uh, you know that big scandal where there was you know a lot of suggestions of drugs and and sex and all these sort of things and so the parties kind of, with fatalities yes <laughs> so, well, I mean it wasn't based on nothing I'll give him <laughs> yeah. that so yeah there was a man who had previously worked in government who decided that he was going to work with all of these Christian organizations who were so outraged and boycotting Hollywood to figure out if there was some kind of compromise that could be made where if we kind of had more good, solid American values in our movies that they would kind of... It's just what the world always needed, and thankfully they got them, right? Yeah, well, we kind of see the ramifications today of what happens when you kind of cut out too much to uh, to the popular opinion. 
Yeah, and this was a sort of decency act mm-hmm. as such that was brought in. Um, but the Hollywood that came before it was a lot. It seemed a lot more egalitarian. There was a lot more men and women, different races on screen, all sorts of different. The sort of thing that certainly post Hayes Code you saw much less of. So it seemed like, although you saw less sex on the screen and less suggestion of it and less weed smoking and all the rest mm-hmm. of it that was also kind of blatantly in the pre-code movies there was a lot less equality, certainly gender equality in how women were viewed postcode. And there seems to be, and there's quite a preponderance of that in uh, in this film, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, when you look at someone like Mae West, who kind of pre-codes was leading so much with her sexuality and being like such a powerful woman on screen and a lot of depictions in those films of kind of you know, race relations were quite like people seeing each other as equals. I mean, yeah, it was certainly, um, a lot was sacrificed when we kind of made things a little bit more sanitised for screen. Yeah, is that a kind of, what? what are, I wonder what the drivers are from that. I mean, there were sort of, as you said, there were sort of Christian, Christian groups bust into film premieres and all the rest of it. Does this feel to you like a, a, a commercial decision? Was this an aesthetic decision? Was just this uh, sort of reactionary? Was this people reacting to the kind of jollies for some of the 1960s and the sexual revolution? What was it, I wonder? I mean, it's a lot of different things. I think fundamentally it comes down to a question of whether or not cinema was art versus commerce. And, uh, you know, do, what do we need it to do? Do we need it to be this big educator or a big moral voice or is kind of storytelling inherently worthwhile in itself i've got my opinions but like, <laughs> yeah it's, it's very interesting to see the way that um those kind of american values were being held as being values for such a small number of people and basically if you were white and christian and you wanted capitalism to you know be, be in your favor this this was all great news for you but i mean that's actually not that many people and a lot of people were kind of underserved by this puritanical regime. Yeah, and um, Christy uh, Guevara Flanagan, who's the director, the maker of this this Storyville documentary, she's got, it's a tough job to, to balance the wealth, the huge wealth of material that she's got at her fingertips in such a subtle way. I mean, I, I, I know you reviewed this in The Guardian and you were one of the first people to write about it. I know you feel similarly about that. How does she tell the story because um, it's such lo- such loaded stuff. The, the the testimonial she has from actresses is obviously is very powerful stuff. How does she tell the story of sex on screen, and especially women's part in it, willing or otherwise, sometimes? Well, I think she, I mean, we mentioned it's breakneck. She takes a really big picture view of kind of the role of sex and sex on screen. Kind of comes back to that Freud um, thing of like everything in the world is about sex except for sex, which is about power. <laughs> so we're kind of looking at it from these very different angles of like, well, when we have not only like what is the experience of making sex on screen like you know how has that been across the generations for people have people been exploited how have people been empowered what type of sexuality do we want to see and what does that say about us as a society and then teach our younger generations about what to expect when they come to kind of their you know their first sexual encounters but then you know also about when we objectify women what does that mean for the wider culture does this kind of create a system of abuse and like the fact that she covers all of that and does still have this like non-puritanical approach where she is like depictions of sex are fundamentally important Mm. Uh, yeah I was really really impressed by the whole film yeah she's not delivering a lecture here right I mean this is it's it's a tough thing because um and one of a female filmmaker near the end of this documentary in fact says it's not it's not women's it's not women filmmakers 
job to lecture people or to make it okay. We just want to make the kind of films we want to make and everyone should turn up to them or not, right? There is an anti-puritanical streak to this, which is kind of a refreshing thing. Because a lot of this stuff, perhaps if this was an essay or if this was done in a different way, could be bashing us over the head with not necessarily a Bible, but the, the spine of a different and thicker book, possibly, right? It's a, it's a difficult thing to get right. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult tone to set. And I mean, it's so interesting that even within kind of single people that appear multiple times in the documentary, you've got one actress who tells a horrifying story about the way that she was treated on a television set. And then we kind of cycle back to her, a, a, you know, a little while later, and we see she's become an intimacy coordinator is actually helping to put sex onto screen, yeah. but in a way where kind of she can, you know, just get someone to, you know, choreograph things in a certain way, check in with people, all of that stuff. So it is impressive that they can kind of look at the big picture and kind of still champion sex on screen whilst really not sugarcoating how bad it's been in the past. Yeah, and that, that's the scenes of the intimacy coordinator, both the interviews with her and then we see a man and woman on set clothed. This is a rehearsal. It's a, it's a literally a dressed rehearsal, I suppose, for an in, a more intimate scene. And it is an amazing thing. And it's addressed in the film. But it did make me think of, hang on, if, there's, if there are stuntmen and stuntwomen, well, it seems crazy, right? You, you, it seems crazy to think. I, I thought this watching it, that the intimacy coordinators, despite their kind of slightly... <laughs> despite their slightly stomach-turning title, necessarily polite title. I'm amazed it took until the noughties for these people, or the, even the, the late noughties for these people to come in yeah. on film sets, right? It's extraordinary. I've interviewed, um, I've written a feature about sex on screen before, and I interviewed intimacy coordinators for it. And God, if you do find yourself feeling a bit idiotic, because the first question is, what do you do? Because <laughs> it's very, <laughs> like, is it somebody that's just like an on-set therapist? Is it yeah. somebody that's just kind of doing a lot of box ticking but like no it's it's a lot of them are former stunt people a lot of them are former actors or choreographers as well and it, it's like i think it's way more technical than i really appreciated mm -hmm. down to like you know the garments and you know the angle of the camera and stuff because i mean as is also covered in the film sometimes people actors would agree to things and then they just see the dop creeping the camera yeah. around to get a kind of more saucy angle on things which is not <laughs> what they agreed to yeah that stuff's really interesting this sort of the sp well, well also there's something that we see in the the film and i love the entertainment attorney the woman that was an entertainment attorney in that who's great who sort of who definitely wore a heart on her sleeve as a as a person that had obviously heard all of the stories that will never get in entertainment weekly um, from, from mostly actresses of course but you know yeah that thing of the DOP turning around to get a bit more boob in shot whereas you know which is you know an amazing thing and how thick the actors union handbook is and how there's only one page of it which is to do with nudity and, and dealing with sex which is presumably probably the most awkward thing you can possibly do on a film set well, I mean I would presume, I, I would assume I, so, I would assume so. <laughs> it's awkward enough when it's uh, not on a film set IRL <laughs> <laughs> There was something said something said in the film that we were talking before we switched on the microphones about that idea of being kissed into submission. You know, mm -hmm. we're actresses or female characters in films, in order to learn a lesson, had to be kissed into submission, which is, is the, the sort of thick end of the wedge. The thin end of it, I suppose, is 
the is 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 some one of the talking heads, one of the vox pops in the documentary says that you know certain in certain portrayals, and it was a common one, women had to be abused in order to get mad to get even. And Uma Thurman's character in Kill Bill is kind of cited as that. You have to get abused, then you have to sort of um, act out your vendetta, and you have to look hot while you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. you're like, you watch that film, you go, this is really good film. And then you go, God, yeah, that is literally some sort of Quentin Tino's adolescent fantasy with a $100 million budget, right? I mean, yeah. It... And it's the adolescent fantasy of somebody that watched uh, every movie going in the 70s and yeah. kind of internalised that. And then we just kind of see it filtered through through a new lens. As much as I like many of Tarantino's films, yeah, there's there's a lot of things where you look back on and you're just like, oh, why was this... One of my favourites. Why? Why is everybody being uh, kind of abused in this way? They're using the N word an awful lot. Yeah, yeah. Some of it hasn't aged brilliantly. Yeah. No. At the end of this, personally, as a film critic, how did you feel? Did you feel like you learnt fresh stuff off the back of this Storyville documentary, Sex on Screen? Was it for you, as a critic, sort of the road less travelled that should have been travelled earlier? I wonder. I mean, given I've done a lot of research into this subject, so like not all of it, I think, was was news to me. But there were lots of new elements that I hadn't considered about um, the implications when it comes to nudity and special effects, the mm. way that we are making our kind of bodies look even more perfect, even less human. That you know, somebody, an actress who'd had a baby at one point, that had to go, and everybody being yeah, made post, younger. The postnatal tummy had to go. Yeah. yeah. And that there was something really disturbing to me of the Game of Thrones shame scene being one actress's head on a different woman's naked body. And yeah, that seems to be a kind of future dystopia that I'm not going to be keeping keeping my eye out for. <laughs> yeah, it, a lot of it was... A lot of it was it, it was it was handled in such an interesting way, and the amazing amount of archive and the subtlety with which it was edited, I suppose, made it. I loved that. I thought that was an amazing documentary, yeah. and and also the context putting films that you wouldn't necessarily think of as treating women in this way, personally, mm-hmm. anyway, suddenly having them in, indexed in this in certain scenes, in certain kind of flick throughs of, of of stuff in that film kind of made me think about differently about that stuff. Even stuff that was, you know, directed by women as well. There's no kind of hard and fast rule on who's behind who's behind the camera and whose name is, is top of the credits, I suppose, as no. well. I mean, one of our great heroes of the... It is the showrunner from The Deuce who, mm. you know, with the kind of ingenuity of one of his actresses, were the first show that had intimacy coordinators. And, and like, I don't think... As much as the film kind of ends up concluding on, like, oh, the triumph of the female lens, I think... It's not just about that, is that we can have allyship across uh, yeah. different yeah. different people. And as a filmmaker says near the end of, of this documentary, it's not female filmmakers' job to to teach consent. We just want to make the films that we want to see. And if you want to come and watch them, you're welcome. Well, <laughs> which I thought was which I thought was decent, non puritanical and, and non preachy as well, I suppose, which just seems to be the tone of the whole film, actually. Yeah. I mean non puritanical is really nice. Is I was kind of expecting it to lend end on a kind of more sour note but I was really moved by kind of having trans actors and disabled actors and all these people kind of talking about how wonderful it was to see themselves sexualized on screen Mm. and how it like much that meant to them personally and they felt that they were kind of creating something that they really wished that they had had growing up so yeah I think it, it really kind of struck the right balance between holding things to account and then also being like fundamentally this can be a tool for like really great social change and also great movies.
Leila Latif, thank you very much for joining us to talk about Sex on Screen. Um, and that is part of the Storyville strand on the BBC iPlayer. And its director is Christy Guevara Flanagan. <laughs> Finally on today's show, in the wake of the Time's Up and Me Too movements, a new role on film and TV sets has been created. Intimacy coordinators are now integral to film sets. I caught up with Lizzie Talbot, whose credits include TV shows like Bridgerton and Anatomy of a Scandal, and films including Bros and Fire Island. First and foremost, our listeners will not forgive me for really asking what are the nuts and bolts of being an intimacy coordinator on set? Sure. Well, I think it's sort of broken down into three elements, really. You've got our advocation part of the role, where we're really there to support and advocate for the cast and the crew during scenes of an intimate nature. And that can be anything from, you know, traditionally nudity and simulated sex to kissing to like domestic violence, all that kind of stuff. We're there to help facilitate those scenes. The Second aspect is the liaison. Because we work with so many different departments, you know, from stunts, hair and makeup, you know, costume, VFX, you know, we work with so many different departments on set that our job really (laughs) involves a lot of liaison between them and making sure that everyone has like a bird's eye view of the intimate scene and what to expect on the day. And the lastly, and most honestly, most important part of the role is the choreography. Because obviously, you know, it's it's often like physicality between two people. It's a physical storytelling of like an intimate journey. And part of our role is, and a huge part of our role, is to like facilitate that choreography. That's an excellent point to make. And I think something perhaps that some people ride roughshod over, that latter point, Lizzie, the choreographic element to it that your job is not to police I presume police behavior on a set and in a scene but to give people the guardrails I'm sure there is a bit of that but it's also to make sure it's convincing without being explicit or uncomfortable for the performers you have an almost directorial role during those scenes of an intimate nature I presume. It's very collaborative with the director. I mean, in the same way that a stunt coordinator would work with a director or a movement director would work with a director, we have a very much a collaborative approach, well, certainly I do anyway, of, of working with a director. So I often say to them, it's it's their party and I'm attending, right? So that they've got the creative vision for the scene. It's my job to help them tell that in a way that's, you know, safe and dynamic for, for everyone involved. I think that's really where my, my role sits. And honestly, I, I do believe it, the choreography is, is such an important part of the role because as the you know, general advocacy across the industry for you know, safer intimacy on screen rises, I really believe that you know, intimacy coordinators need to really focus on, on the choreography because if we are in five years' time, if we're seen as the only people who are advocating for actors on set, one, that's incorrect because so many people for such a long time have advocated for actors. It's just you know, squarely sits within our role now. But also, you know, like <laughs> the, the whole of the industry should, should step up and should rise with it as opposed to just us being seen as the only advocates. And, and quite honestly, like it, it is that that is happening, which is which is really great. 
And I just wonder, scenes are written often in office rooms, you know, from the pen of men and women who don't necessarily know who's going to be playing the roles that they Mm -hmm. concoct, that they dream up. I know a script goes through a lot of changes and script directions and and the direction goes through a lot of changes as well when it meets the reality of the film set. But I wonder how, or I wonder if you've ever had to kind of remake a scene, practically remake a scene from the writer's intention or even sometimes from the director's intention in order to make it a safer place for the performers to, to, to be in. I think that massively depends on the script because, you know, sometimes it'll be written in the script, they have sex. <laughs> and that's and that's really what, what you have to go on. And so at that point, it's, you know, that it'll just be as blunt as that. And so at that point, you really have to have that. That's when the discussion with the director comes in about what, what do they see this uh, relationship looking like? You know, what's what's the power dynamic here between, you know, these two characters? What's the history? What story are we, are we trying to tell between them? And so obviously when a scene's written like that, there's a huge scope for, you know, what you can do there. It's massive. And on other scripts, you know, it will be down to like a finite detail of exactly what is happening. So in terms of like rewriting, like that's not specifically my job. If there's something that I think, you know, might be you know, outside an actor's boundary or, you know, something that we might just have to shift and change, like I might offer it. But again, I don't typically, you know, rewrite anything. Yeah, no, it's, I suppose it's an interesting thing, though, when it's simply the direction is they have sex. You've got, mm-hmm. it's a sort of how long is a piece of string <laughs> thing. And I suppose Correct. it depends on the director's vision and the comfort of the performance, I suppose, as well. I wasn't Absolutely. suggesting you got your red pen out necessarily, but there is, <laughs> practically speaking, though, you might do, might you, with with how you, you perform your practice. And just to get a sense of of the sort of, as I say, the, the practicality of that, Lizzie. Are you kind of taking people's hands and saying this, you can put your hand here, or one actor is saying to the other, you can do this, you can do that? I wonder if if it is as nuts and bolts as that. You are there on hand to, to talk to people if they feel less comfortable or if, if two people who are a little bit confused by having to do something that tends to be behind closed doors in front of a crew of people, simply look your way and ask for some reassurance or some guidance. In terms of those examples, where on the sliding scale is is most of your work done? So typically what what we do is we start off and we have like the conversations with the actors very early on, like in pre-production. We'll be having the conversations with the actors about what they're comfortable with, boundaries they have, all those sorts of things. And so from there, we'll get like a very clear idea with conversations um, with the director about what the scene's supposed to look like. And then typically in rehearsals, that's really where we play around. And I think rehearsals is such a huge part of our role. I never really want to turn up on set and like shoot. It's it's really important to get that rehearsal time in because that's when we can play around and find out what works, what doesn't, you know, sometimes images in people's heads aren't the same when you actually practically uh, like choreograph it in person. And so I think it turns into a very practical role uh, like during rehearsals and then, you know, when we're on set. And I come from, you know, a, a fight fight director background so I I tend to work very practically with actors and and we get specific about you know what hands are going where you know what our breath work is looking like uh, what our vocals sound like and you know just typically like you know the beginning middle and end of this of 
this journey that these actors are going on. And so, yeah, sometimes it does get very, very practical. But, you know, as it should, you know, it's a physical storytelling in the same way that like a dancer or a fight would be. And of course, with fights, you're very specific because you don't want anyone to improvise that. And it's the same thing here. You know, we often give actors room to breathe, but typically it's it's pretty well choreographed. My thanks to Lizzie Talbot there. And that's it for today's episode. My thanks also, of course, to Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Leila Latif. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu. And Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.